All right, church, we're going we're gonna to gather back together. Good to be uh, with all of you this morning. My name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Greeley. Um, pastor Pat, uh, Josh may have said this earlier. I came in kind of late to the announcement. Pastor Pat is over at Living Water opening up the word to that body this morning. And so... Um, you know, if we could get a couple more of us preaching in a couple different places all at one time, that'd be a pretty sweet deal, if you know what I'm saying. So, uh, praise God for that. Uh, uh, as you know, Pat and Jolene um, have been gone, and uh, they're back, and then we, you know, push them to the eastern side of Colorado, so, or Greeley, so they'll be back next week, and I'm uh, grateful for that. So, um, if you're new with us, or you've been gone over the last uh, several weeks, we are in between a sermon series in many ways. So, we just finished the book of Acts, some 40 sermons where we uh, walked verse by verse through that amazing book, and then we're aiming for the, the Gospel of John uh, next week as we kick that off, and between those two points, we've been in this mini-sermon series called Prepare the Way, considering some of the ways, just some of the ways in which the Old Testament prepares for the coming Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. A couple weeks ago, we started and we looked at creation. We then looked at the Old Testament law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Josh led us through the Psalms, and then last week, Dustin led us through the prophets. And I've been blessed by this time of study as God continues to grow my worship of Him for what He's been doing for thousands of years of human history in preparation before he brings it to pass in the face of Jesus Christ. So if you have missed any of those messages, I would strongly recommend that you go online, um, grab our website, and listen to them. If you missed any of them, maybe listen to them in close succession. I think you'll see some of the beauty of God's threads as it arcs over the text and the beauty therein, and as it opens our eyes to a greater and greater amazement of God's unfolding plan to bring Jesus onto the stage. So, uh, and what's more, uh, we've only just begun, I believe, in our time together, wetting our appetite and anticipation for the coming Messiah. As much as we have uncovered with creation, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, we've only just scratched the surface, quite frankly, on what God is doing in the Old Testament. And so this sermon series has not been intended to be exhaustive, to lay bare all the ways that God was preparing the way for Jesus to come, but instead continue to polish the lens of our understanding and our interpretation of what the Old Testament is about. Because how you and I answer that question, what is the Old Testament really about, has massive implications on how you read under, and understand and apply 77% of God's self-revealed Word. Think about that for a second. 77% of the Bible is in the context of the Old Testament, which means for those math people out there that only 23% is left in the New Testament. It makes sense why as a child I was taught about so many of the stories in the Old Testament, because there are so many. Adam, and Eve, Cain and Abel, Abraham and Isaac, Joseph and his brothers, Moses, Samson, Ruth, David, Esther, Jonah, Hosea, Daniel, Ezekiel, and so many more. 
so many amazing people with amazing stories. Stories and people that are celebrated often as heroes because of their virtues, their character, or their faith. Significant lessons that we can glean from as we consider their life and the manner in which they walked. Characters I remember dressing up as a child to go to my church's harvest festival. My mom still has the flannel graph felt board. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, this felt board that she still breaks out, bless her heart, and teaches my kids when they go over to her house. She really is the best mom and the best grandmother to my children. Thank you, servant-hearted Sunday school teachers, planting seeds into the lives of young people. May those seeds grow into faith in King Jesus and flourish in new life in Christ. Amen. May we also, regardless of our familiarity, not miss the overarching intent of those characters and their stories. I don't desire to downplay downplay the characters, their virtues of strength, endurance, steadfastness, faithfulness this morning. However, my hope is to widen our view as it relates to these amazing characters and connect their place in the Old Testament as yet another way that God in his perfect and sovereign plan foreshadowed and prepared the way for the one that is greater in strength greater in endurance, greater in steadfastness, and was faithful even unto death, which I believe can be easily missed. So the sermon title for today is this, it's People Pointing to a Person. People Pointing to a Person. And the roadmap for today's time is is this, I want to ask the question, why can we easily miss that in the Old Testament? Second is I want to try to answer that question. Why is it not natural to see that people point to another person, which is Christ? And then third, I want to take two, just two, for there are many Old Testament characters, and I want to model what it looks like to see them as pointing to Jesus the Christ. And then fourth and final I want to ask the question, what does people pointing to a person have to do with you and me? What does all of that have to do with you and me? So, first things first, what's the natural way that we read and understand the characters in the Old Testament and why can we misunderstand them? According to a study by Preaching and Pulpit Digest, 85% of sermons given are anthropocentric. Meaning that sermons given on a weekly basis regard humanity as the central and most important element of existence, not God. This leads to the creation of human heroes, whereby we celebrate them as if in their own efforts and might they have accomplished this or that. Why can that be the case when we open God's Word, we read His story, what He is doing, and we end up not only seeing Him, but we see His players and His actors? Arguably, there's a lot of reasons. Let's just focus on a couple of them this morning. 
Why can we miss God's intent? First, very practically, because we aren't being taught and we're not teaching others how these amazing characters prepare the way for a greater and perfect character to come. We get distracted by the amazing details of a specific story and a character, and maybe we get preoccupied with certain elements of the character, and we fixate on them without working out how this individual piece has a greater meaning and purpose connected to the whole. It's kind of like my daughter, Grace. If you have spent any time with that sweet little girl, you know that that girl loves cartwheels. I mean, she loves cartwheels. She recently started doing gymnastics, and it has been good for her to not just work on cartwheels, quite frankly. But have a teacher who can help her be exposed to new movements, to learn and connect other movements together, not just one cartwheel to another and to another and to another and to another. In the same way, we must be taught and teach others that this amazing book, the Word of God, isn't ultimately about us. It contains the most significant knowledge of humanity for humanity, but it's not ultimately about humanity. It's not ultimately about human stories told in different places with different heroes. In our pride, or maybe even our desire to relate, we can strip the intent of God's Word to mere human tales, motivating right behavior, celebrating it when it happens, and challenging us to be like them, don't we? Of course, the opposite effect can also take place. If you read these amazing accounts, stories of great obedience, and instead of motivation, you find yourself discouraged. I guess God didn't make me like Moses. David, Ruth, Esther. The human heart is in desperate need to make things about ourselves. It's one of the ramifications of sin, maybe the greatest one. And so we must be conscious of this lens that shadows our reading, understanding, and application of God's Word. Over and over again, the Bible teaches that God's character is at the center of God's Word. That His glory He desires and He will not give it to another. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8. And we strip the intent of God's plan when we take what was meant to be about him and we make it ultimately about ourselves. So why can we miss it ultimately? It's not our nature for us in our pride to see God as the ultimate object and not ourselves. Second, we haven't been taught and we aren't teaching principally from the pulpit That the Bible, all of it, not just some parts of it, but all aspects are about the character and the nature of the holy, almighty God. Ultimately put on display to the face of Jesus, his son. So if even the people of the Old Testament 
are pointing to a person? How do we grow in our understanding of that so that we might not miss the intent of 77% of God's Word, the Old Testament? Let's take two examples, two well-known characters of the Old Testament, and let's see how the Word of God intends to use them to point us to the face of Jesus as the Christ. Let's begin with a guy named Moses. Moses is a popular guy in the Old Testament. He wrote the first five books. He's often remembered as one who encountered a burning bush. I love that story when I was a kid. Proclaimed a message of redemption to Pharaoh for God's people. Was the leader of the Israelites out of slavery. The one who brought down the Ten Commandments. And led God's people in the wilderness and got them to the doorstep of the promised land. Amen. But what if God used Moses for all of those things? to benefit and bless his people, to teach us some good and amazing lessons. And wrote the details of Moses' life to point us to Jesus. Let's take the next few minutes and draw out the biblical connections between Moses and Jesus. And my hope and my prayer as we do this, that it will fuel the fire of our affections for the greatness and the awesomeness of God, the writer of the greatest story ever told. Moses. Moses' birth. Let's begin with that. Moses was born under a cruel and oppressive time. Exodus chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. We know this a little bit. Pharaoh ordered all the Israelite midwives to kill any newborn Israelite boy when they were born. From the story of Moses, we know that Moses' parents hid him away in a basket on the Nile River, and God led that basket to none other than the daughter of Pharaoh in the household of Egypt, which is an amazing act of deliverance and kindness that God provides unto Moses and his people, no doubt but is also a shadow of the kind of difficulty that Jesus himself was born into. Jesus' own birth and plight from a man named King Herod, who after realizing that Herod had been outwitted by the wise men, what did he do? He gave the order to kill all two-year-olds and younger boys in Bethlehem. Like Moses, who was hidden away from this cruelty by being raised in the house of Pharaoh, Jesus and his family also found refuge from Herod in a land called Egypt. Scripture tells us that Moses left behind his Egyptian throne for the sake of his people, Hebrews chapter 11, foreshadowing the greater sacrifice of Jesus to leave his heavenly one to ascend into his creation, to gather and save his people. Moses was the one that led his people out of bondage, redeeming them from their slave masters with the blood of the Passover lamb. Whereas Jesus is the savior of not just one people, but of all people who would believe. Where Moses provided a way for life to be spared by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus provides for eternal life with his own blood. 
Moses was the one that God used to lift up his hands to break the Red Sea in half, providing a way for his people to escape the hands of Pharaoh, where Jesus would be the ultimate means lifted up upon a cross, purchasing safe passage and life for his people. Exodus 32, verse 32, Moses offers up his own life interceding for the sinfulness of the people of God who corrupted themselves and worshipped a golden calf at Mount Sinai. Whereas Jesus actually did lay down his life for all those who would believe, making righteous the corrupt. Moses was the meteor of the old covenant law pointing the way for the one that would bring a new covenant in his blood, which is Jesus. So all of these events in the life of Moses and not see that they point to the life of Jesus, the Christ, is to miss much of the intent of God's story about this man named Moses. And there is no doubt more there than we just uncovered. But to be sure, Moses points to the greater Redeemer, the greater leader, the greater intercessor, and the greater guide to a greater land. What about a man named David? Oh, David. Popular for being a shepherd, a giant slayer, Goliath. A king, a man after God's own heart, and a writer of many of the Psalms. How do the details of David's life point to Jesus? Both David and Jesus were born from the same family line in the same town of Bethlehem. David was a young boy, a shepherd who fought against great foes to protect his sheep. 1 Samuel chapter 16, where John chapter 10 tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, that he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. 1 Samuel chapter 17 tells us about David's mighty victory over Goliath as David trusted in the Lord to slay the unimaginable Philistine foe. I love this story as a boy, which boys don't. A nine-foot-plus giant comes to the doorstep of God's people, and he taunts and he threatens them for 40 days. Challenges anyone to single combat for decisive victory. It reminds me of the scene in the movie Troy. Right? Okay. Bagarus steps forward. He pushes these guys out of his way to get to the front, and he stands like head and shoulders above everybody else, and everybody else is terrified, except Achilles, who with one single motion of his sword conquers him. Let me draw out just a few ways in which David in this event, points to Jesus. David is first sent to the battlefield by whom? His father, Jesse. 1 Samuel 17. 
But unlike Jesse, who knew not what his son would accomplish, God the Father sent his son Jesus into the world fully knowing the victory he would obtain. When David arrives, he would find himself before a trembling army in the shadow of a mighty foe, demanding that a sole representative would determine the outcome for everybody else. Lo and behold, Jesus is cited as our sole representative in Romans chapter 5. The representative for humanity who brings forth victory from our unconquerable enemy, sin. David claims victory over Goliath with the throw of his sling and a well-aimed rock. Boom. The mighty Goliath that seemed impossible to beat was conquered. Jesus stepped onto the battlefield, conquering sin by the blood of his cross. David was anointed king selected by God to rule over his people, where Jesus is the anointed Messiah who brings forth a true and better kingdom. David is promised that through his line he will build a temple unto the Lord so that the people of God might worship God in God's place. And Jesus is the ever-present temple who comes as the means for God's people to be with God. David is called the man after God's own heart, a picture of the true and better heart of Christ who, though he walked through the life of temptation, unlike David, was tested and found perfect. And like, what more could we say? Like concerning these people of old and how they pointed to Jesus, to borrow several words from Tim Keller, he says that Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test of the garden, a much tougher garden, and was obedient. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, was blood that cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all comfort and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whether he went to create a people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of our justice that we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only received the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, at the hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly place but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk her life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who cast out into the storm so that we would be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over it. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's really not about you. It's about him. Thank you, Tim Keller. It's about him. And him using all these things, including great and imperfect people, 
to point us to a greater and perfect one to come, Jesus as the Messiah. The Christ, the Son of Man, Jesus, the Son of God who came, who brought the hope for hopeless people who look at these saints of old and the amazing lessons that we can learn from May we not be moved towards moralism or crushed by despair because we can't possibly do what they did. Instead, let us see Jesus, our blessed hope, who through his gospel, his life, his death, and glorious resurrection purchased life for anyone who would repent repent and believe in him, to be saved from the weight of sin and rebellion against him, that we would find rest in Jesus. And who are now, like the saints of old, a new creation pointing to a person, Jesus. Isn't that an amazing reality? That we can read the amazing account of the Old Testament and see these imperfect and flawed people that God used to move his story of redemption forward, pointing others to the person of Jesus Christ, and that is the same thing that God is up to right now, today. That if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God is using you and your redeemed life to point individuals to himself and use you for his story of redemption. personalize that with me for a moment. How is your new life in Christ pointing individuals to Jesus? How does your life point to Jesus in your friendships, in your marriages, in your workplace, in your parenting, in your service, in large decisions to move or not move, to get a new job or not get a new job, to small things like watching your kids' sporting events, your social media posts, to the way that you interact with the, the Rio's wait staff that just couldn't seem to keep my water glass filled last night. God is using all of that and more as his plan to use people to point others to Jesus. Maybe you know people. I pray you do. I pray you are one of them. I pray there are many like this in our church that when you think of them, your heart and mind are stirred towards seeing and worshiping Jesus. Let us not make the mistake of making them an Old Testament hero. Instead, let us have them, like the stories of old, stir our minds and our hearts towards affections to the one that empowers such faith, that empowers perseverance, empowers boldness, steadfastness, and love. And let us, through the power of the Spirit, continue to grow in being people that point others towards Jesus in our words and in our deeds. Not for our own praise, but for the praise of the one that is doing the work in us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, what a story. 
you have written. What a story you are continuing to write. That you would, in your kindness, plant seeds about what you were doing back in the Old Testament, that you brought it to completion in the face of Jesus, and you now use us as people on the other side of the cross to point people towards the same person, which is Jesus. God, that you would fan into flame our affection for you, that we would not compare ourselves unnecessarily to the person to our right, to the left, or to David or Moses or whomever, Lord God, that we would be resolved knowing that we are flawed and imperfect people. That if we trust in you, that we are perfectly accepted and perfectly loved. And can now, because of your spirit in us, walk empowered to point others to you. That that is your plan A, to bring about redemption. For your great glory and our great joy. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.